Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. everyone and welcome to Reconsider, where we don't do the thinking for you. Last time we interviewed Carlos Lara and Professor Robert Murphy of the uh, Lara Murphy Report, Lara Murphy Podcast, to give us the Austrian School of Economics perspective on the boom and bust cycle, among other things. Today we're going to see another side of the debate with the help of Jake Meyer, an economist at the California State University at Long Beach. But before we get started, some very quick housekeeping. Hey, if this is your like 50th show that you've listened to, go ahead and leave a review on your favorite podcast uh, catcher. Uh, you know, we love those stars and they help us reach more people to help them reconsider as well. And finally, before we get started, uh, we are, of course, a part of the Agora Podcast Network, and we would be remiss not to recommend our great president and dear leader, Roy Field Brown, uh, who has more podcasts than you can shake a stick at. So anything you might want, he's got. If you're into the English show Dumpty Dum, he has a uproarious uh, MST, MST3K style review of that. Uh, he actually has a great American show called 10 American Presidents, even though he's English. So you get a little bit of that outside perspective. Uh, he has a great culture podcast called How Jamaica Conquered the World, and it's not just reggae. We've appeared on his show Mid-Atlantic uh, about relations between the Western nations, and there's a whole lot more. The best way to figure it out is just go to royfield.com. That's R-O-I-F-I-E-L-D.com and pick the podcast show that most intrigues you. Jake's work focuses on empirically studying the interaction of the international finance system and domestic political factors, particularly looking at financial crises and credit all very relevant to the boom-bust cycle debate. He's also a research economist at uh, Forensic Economic Services, was part of the faculty at Claremont University, and got his master's and PhD from Claremont as well. Jake, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me on. I appreciate the opportunity. Yeah. So, Jake, we're going to start you with a question that we've actually asked a bunch of people already. So this is to dear listeners of Reconsider. This one will be familiar to you. So there are many attempts made at an explanation of what brought the United States out of the Great Depression. Um, in one earlier show about the gold standard, we discussed Professor, Chris Professor Christina Romer's paper, which argues that the gold standard worsened the depression because it kept the Fed from dropping interest rates to make credit more available. Uh, and our Austrian guests on the other side told us that it was not 
the gold standards, but in fact, Hoover's policies actually aiming at keeping wages high in order to prevent spending power from crashing that worsened the depression because there was no cheap labor to scoop up. So the questions are, you know, do either of these stack up? Is there a third way that explains it better? And are they just, you know, are they too simple? Is something missing? Um, I, th- I think there's a there's a certain amount of validity to both of these ideas because because the thing is on a long enough time frame if prices are able to adjust with wages being just the price of labor if wa- if prices are able to adjust you're not going to have this huge amount of slack in the labor market o- on this long time period or this long long time period of stagnation unless there's something else going on so I do think that's part of the story but I think it's also a very overly simplistic view. Uh, and I think that Romer's perspective on this uh, adds a lot of value to that to that view. So typically, when you have some some excess amount of slack or this high unemployment, this uh, this sort of uh, economic stagnation, what's typically happening is, in addition to there being something preventing prices from adjusting, there's usually either something happening in other parts of of the global economy or in financial markets that involve that involve what we would call deleveraging cycles, where what's basically occurring. Is that because there's been some sort of some sort of market crash or some sort of recession that that began, it's it's making people default on loans, which is reducing aggregate demand, which is making more people default on loans, putting banks in stress, reducing asset values. And then everyone essentially, because they're trying to sell assets to to keep their the value of their assets from falling below the value of their liabilities to stay what we call solvent. Right where they have a positive, where they have a positive net worth, they continue to sell these assets, which depresses these asset prices down even farther. And then you get stuck in this sort of feedback loop of selling assets, pushing asset prices down, selling assets. And then when that's going on, everyone is selling off assets. They're reducing the amount of loans they're issuing, which is keeping which is keeping that sort of credit from being extended to the portions of the economy that need it to invest in order to create the jobs and create the businesses and expand businesses to kind of get you out of that depression. So the gold standard here and other and other policy factors that kept um, that uh, kept interest rates from falling low enough are are a huge part of the story as well as the initial idea of of this uh, sort of restriction on prices being being able to adjust um, is an important aspect of it, too. And that's actually something that you see a lot of the times when you look at crises, crises worldwide, uh, is that is that when there is some sort of factor that's preventing prices from adjusting, wages in particular, you do see higher unemployment in those places whenever something bad does happen here. So, uh, so there's there's a lot going on, but I think the I think the Austrian perspective here does does avoid some very important things in asset markets that having the lower interest rates or having the monetary expansion uh, could have could have helped with boosting up the asset values and pushing credit to, to to these different parts of the economy that were essentially starved for credit, which would have allowed them to create jobs and create businesses. Now, I know we definitely want to get into a conversation about the Great Recession of 08 and some of the TARP bailout, but I have a follow-up to, to what you just laid out uh, because I just read this today and it, it kind of seems relevant. It was in this economic newsletter that I read occasionally um, called Malden Economics, and it was this author, uh, it was a guest author saying that we no longer have business cycles, we have credit cycles. And the idea being that you know, what has driven the real economy in the, in the long term now doesn't really exist. It's just a matter of expanding and decreasing credit per the deleveraging that you just mentioned. Is there any 
validity to this argument or do, are, are there still business cycles? Are business cycles not going anywhere? Well, the thing is there's – so the so what's been happening over the past 30, 40 years especially is that these different sorts of credit financial cycles have gotten much more important, right? There's there's just a – there's the, the amount of assets in the economy relative to the amount of – or assets or these stock measures relative to the amount of uh, – the amount of these flow measures or income, like GDP and such, have been rising. So these movements in asset prices or these cycles in credit and asset values are becoming more and more important in terms of the actual behavior that we see. So, so I don't think it's fair to say that that's, that these are replacing each other or the credit financial cycles are replacing your sort of normal business cycle behavior, but it's something that's becoming more and more important. And if you look at if you look at um, if you look at measures of these. Uh, you know, these kind of these oscillations of these financial cycles, the um, the uh, the biggest sorts of crises that we see are happening when the credit cycle starts turning down as well, where we start seeing uh, where we start seeing credit fall, where we start seeing asset values start to fall. And that's when you actually see the really, really the very, very big crises and such. And and so something like the uh, dot com uh, bubble, that was something that's that didn't coincide with with a big uh, you know downturn in the credit cycle, but it's it's still a business cycle event. So there's so there's definitely there's definitely a lot going on with the credits and the financial cycles, but that's not the whole story. And understanding the business cycle and understanding this this sort of a, a recession boom behavior that we see. Yeah, and it's an interesting comparison that you draw with the dot com burst because a compare well a comparison that a lot of people will say is that was a, an equity driven bust and the oh eight the great recession there was so much debt in the system that deleveraging had to occur over such a long time which has extended the recovery and this the great recession was treated with TARP the bailouts um, fiscal stimulus monetary stimulus quantitative easing and currently the environment is looking pretty good. Uh, unemployment's low, profits are high. I'm obviously leading you to a question here, but you know what is this a real recovery? Are there things that are not captured in these metrics? And if there is, you know, is there a difference between a real recovery and just a reinflation of some sort of new asset bubble? Well, to be uh, to be perfectly frank, if you actually look at if you actually look at things like uh, you know things like the Fed statements that were made at the at the in the first year or so after the crisis, one of the one of the big things or one of the main goals of these quantitative easing of these rounds of quantitative easing was essentially to partially reinflate the bubble, or or a, perhaps a better way to think about it is is in the lead up to the crisis when we're on this upswing of this credit and financial cycle, what's basically happening is you're having credit being extended. You're having asset values rise. Both of these things are increasing aggregate demand. So the, so the increase in credit is just increasing spending in the economy, which is, which is, uh, you know, bidding up things like housing prices or stock prices, reducing unemployment, creating this just general sort of boom. On the asset side, this this exact same sort of process where 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 people are leveraging out, they're increasing their lending, they're increasing their borrowing for the sake of lending and spending, that's bidding up asset prices, which is making people wealthier overall, which makes them spend more, which makes them uh, which makes them more confident in the state of the economy, which makes them willing to leverage out farther. And you get this sort of feedback loop of rising asset prices, rising credit, increasing aggregate demand, falling unemployment that just feeds back into itself. 
And then it can deviate relatively far away from what's happening. Um, well, and, and no matter how no, no matter how this process starts, it can deviate relatively far away from from what's fundamentally justified. And that's what we saw from oh, oh what's, let's say two thousand two to two thousand six, or prob- starting even before that a little bit. But what happens here when the bust hits is this exact same process that took us away from our fundamental values, where um, in the direction of optimism, high asset values, uh, a lot of credit extensions. Uh, being extended, it reverses itself, and then it takes you way, and it, it can take very easily take you way below what's fundamentally justified by making by making asset values fall too far, by making credit contract too much, by making unemployment rise too high, very very easily here because everyone's selling off these asset values, they're getting very scared about the uh, assets that they are holding. Right, which is uh, causing these sell-offs that push the, that push the values down, which contract aggregate demand, which cause people to go out of business, lose jobs, which contracts aggregate demand even farther. Right, so this whole feedback loop works in reverse, and it takes you far below or to these economic conditions that are far worse than what they probably should be. And so the the thing to keep in mind here is that uh, creating something, broadly speaking, is generally a lot tougher than destroying something. Right. We could we could very easily go in and and destroy a business. You know, you can very easily destroy a business in these sorts of in these sorts of economic downturns. And and it's very, very tough and costly to create this economic activity after the fact. So what they were basically trying to do at the in the early stages of this post-crisis period was get right in the middle of this feedback loop where people were deleveraging, asset values are falling, people are uh, becoming unemployed, businesses are going out are or. Uh, companies are going out of business, and so the idea here was to try to reinflate the bubble a bit to keep to keep this feedback loop um, working in this negative direction from uh, from becoming too powerful and destroying too much economic activity. So I do think so I do think this idea of of labeling the policy inappropriate because some of its some of its goal was to reinflate the bubble. I think to a certain extent that's missing that that's missing that this is actually to a certain degree a desirable thing because because these same forces that that make the boom um, also also take this bus when it's starting and cause it to be far more costly than it would have been otherwise. And, it, and if you can reinflate it to a certain extent, you can stop some of the costs that would be associated with with these you know big crash events or these these big recessions. Now, our Austrians might quibble with you a little bit here because it sounds a lot like you're saying yeah, yeah, they would. They would. <laughs> yeah, it sounds a lot like you're saying that the the boom is, you know, is inevitable, right? And I think our Austrians would argue, no, 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 it's not a re- inevitable. And I think that people don't, who don't know them that well would say, oh, they're just going to blame the government. But they might say something to the effect of, and you know fellow Austrians listening, feel free to write me and tell me this is wrong, but they might say that, hey, look, yes, we agree it's the boom you must fear, right? The boom is where things get bad, but the boom is not natural. Naturally, let's say if we had a gold standard or some other restriction on monetary supply, as people wanted more credit because, you know, things are booming and they want to take out loans to do things and et cetera, what's going to happen is the price of money is going to increase with respect to the demand for money. And therefore, we're going to have a fairly self-balancing cycle, right? Because what happens is as the cost of money goes up, which essentially means credit gets more expensive, then you actually have to sort the 
you know, the requests for credit by their likely payoff. And so you're actually going to, you know, not get bad ideas getting getting funded. You're going to actually have to restrict the amount of credit you lend out based on profitability. And so there's this like natural tampering of the boom and you can get some healthy growth and not fall into the bust in the first place. How would you respond to such an argument? Um, I actually pretty strongly disagree with that. So the so the issue here is that there's a few there's a few things uh, that are going on here. So so first off, in, in terms of the boom, I, I I'm not going to say you know the boom is inevitable by any means because there's there's all kinds of right, there's all kinds of situations. Actually, most of the time when you look when you look at countries, they're not in the middle of of, of a bubble, right? They're um, I, I I think in I think in one project we're working on, we've we found maybe. 40 events that we labeled bubbles in the past in the past 20 years in in a data set of maybe 60 countries. So I mean, it's one of those things that it's it, it happens. It's not it's not rare, but it's it's not the norm that that's happening all the time. Now the now the part of this that says that the gold standard would prevent the bubble, uh, I strongly disagree with um, because surprisingly, and this is this is a bit of a counterintuitive idea. The biggest argument against the gold standard is often that it can actually create an unstable money supply. Because Say if you, what? Yep. Yes. So think about it this way. So what portion of what portion of the amount of money that you've spent in the past, oh, I don't know, three years, what portion of it was physical cash? Oh, a tiny portion. Tiny portion. So what's so most of what's happening here is the transactions are taking place, whether it's credit cards or you're paying or you're paying uh, you're paying with a check or you're transferring money around bank accounts. It's all happening at these higher orders of the money supply that uh, that we call the M1 or the M2, depending on which one we talk about. The M2 is a little more common. And what it basically is is just physical cash plus a few other things like like uh, demand deposits, uh, money you can access through writing checks, or money you can access in a savings account. Just these different these different uh, things you can use as currency that aren't a physical stack of dollar bills and such. And the relationship between the monetary base and the amount of money at these measures, the M2, is very, very volatile. And it's and this money supply at the M2 is gonna is gonna be a multiple of what's happening uh, at the monetary base. And so what happens here is if you have a gold standard and you're doing something like this, you can you're going to have a very stable monetary base. But as lending behavior changes, this this amount of this amount of money at the M2 is going to be is going to be fluctuating quite a bit. Uh, as people start lending more and economic activity heats up, that's going to expand quite a bit. In the middle of a bust here, when everyone is shutting down lending, it's going to contract quite a bit. So, so, so I actually so so my perspective on this and the typical and I think the perspective on this from from uh, generally speaking, non-Austrian economists, is that what's going to happen here is if you have a gold standard, this sort of this sort of factor where the money supply contracts whenever whenever a bust is starting and it expands whenever a boom is starting, is is going to is going to occur just as much uh, under under a gold standard because your multiple of the monetary base, this M2, the money that we actually use, the type of money that we actually use to uh, for the vast majority of our transactions is going to move very, very pro-cyclically with, with the boom-bust cycle. Because as soon as the boom is, you know, as soon as you start 
as soon as you start getting into, you know, boom, good economic times, people are going to start lending more. People are going to start people are, are going to start borrowing more. And this idea of people having just less, less cash sitting around and people spending more through uh, things like writing checks or using credit cards, that's going to that's going to generate this increase in the M2 that is going to happen in the exact same way that that we saw with fiat currency. So something so some sort of some sort of gold standard could work very very well if the vast majority of transactions were happening at the monetary base. But what's going to happen here with most transactions happening at the M2 is that we're going to see this very very volatile uh, this, this is a very, very volatile money supply, the M2, the one that matters, uh, even though we have this very stable monetary base. So there are also going to be a lot of free marketeers that aren't necessarily advocating for the gold standard that would argue that there's kind of a fundamental you know, political problem for the Federal Reserve, or at least the, their bosses, which is this, you know, when the good times are going, you don't want to be the one to ruin the party and say, hey, it's time to increase interest rates. Like, let's let's cool the jets a little bit. And when, you know, things are bad, there may be a perverse incentive to overinflate because, you know, what the government doesn't want to be accused of is in the bust doing nothing and in the boom, you know, being the, the party spoiler. So they might argue that, for example, in the case of the uh, recovery from the 2008 crisis, that you know we're looking at very high government debt now. We're looking at very low interest rates that have been you know historically historically low for historically long, and that we've actually set ourselves up for another crisis due to these you know these kind of political uh, perverse incentives. And you know, is there is is that valid? Uh, are you concerned at all about the current situation? Yeah. Um, should we be? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I um, so so I actually I actually agree with with essentially all of that. Um, and, and the thing is, I don't see I, I don't see that as a smaller problem than 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 what you would have with the gold standard, though. But but, but I do 100 percent agree with it. And I think that's why. So, you know, so people. So, so for example, an economist that's that's, you know, very famous. Uh, cer- uh, certainly, certainly a very strong free market advocate, but it's not an Austrian, uh, Milton Friedman. He uh, he advocated for a stable growth rate of the M2 in terms of a, an, instead of discretionary monetary policy, or basically to stabilize this M2 that that I was talking about, and then allow the monetary base to shift or shift the monetary base to keep that M2 at about the same point or at a stable rate of growth here. So that's actually something that's so that's actually something that's um, that uh, a lot of other people have talked about, and I think would allow you to have a stable money supply while still dealing with these problems that can be created by the gold standard. Now, the aspect here where there are not strong enough incentives to restrain lending and raise interest rates and uh, reduce the money supply in the middle of a boom, and there are perhaps too strong incentives to loosen all of this in the middle of a bust, uh, I, I actually agree with that as well. And so there's, so there's several, there's several, ma- there's several major there's several major factors at at the global level that uh, that are important in generating instability in the global financial system, and this is actually the one that I find most compelling, which is basically that that both in terms of policymakers and people who are and just consumers and people who are working in asset markets just across the board, people are going to tend to be uh, people are going to tend to underrate risk in the middle of a boom. 
right? So people are underwriting risk in the middle of a boom. As, so think think the housing market in 2004, the stock market in 04, 05, 06, and such. Um, a, a, everything is going great. Unemployment's low. Housing prices are going up. So so who in their right mind thinks that we're in this you know risky uh, in this risky time period, and we need to build up capital buffers? Right. People, people, generally speaking, aren't thinking that people generally aren't aren't thinking that, well, uh, we have to raise interest rates because something bad might happen. No, things are going great. Everyone, everyone thinks risk is low. But because this risk is low, they're not raising interest rates. They're not keeping the money supply stable when they should. So there's this downward bias in interest rates. There's this upward bias in fiscal deficits because or I should say government spending, because, again, you're raising a bunch of money in taxes. Because the, the economy is booming. So right. and we may have a lot of debt, but if the economy keeps yes. going in a straight line like this, it'll pay itself off in a few years. Right. Yeah, exactly. So everyone's thinking that. So, well, I mean, I mean well, so people, more people than you know should are thinking that or too many people are thinking that. So you have so you're in the middle of this sort of boom and and everyone's spending. Right. Everyone's spending. Interest rates are too low. Fiscal deficits are too high. And then and then what, what happens is, is eventually things turn. You have this credit cycle going to the downturn. And now you've and now instead of paying down the debt in 05, 06, right, et cetera, you you raise spending uh, instead of raising interest rates, which would have which would have lessened the boom, right, lessened this sort of deviation from fundamental values that turned into a crisis. You're now you're now at the beginning of this crisis with interest rates that are too low to you know, lower farther and stimulate the economy with a budget deficit that's, that's very large and could very quickly become unsustainable if the economy contracts, which it is, right? Because you're on the downturn of the credit cycle. So people are so people are underrating this risk and they're having too loose monetary policy. They're having too big of fiscal deficits in the middle of the boom. And then when the bus does hit, now you have to stretch out even farther. You have to, or, or you're pressed or you're pushed to, str- to stretch out even farther, to lower interest rates farther, to uh, raise fiscal deficits even farther to stimulate the economy. And what this does, if you think about this process over multiple cycles, it creates this, this sort of long-running downward bias. And, or sorry, this long-running downward bias in terms of interest rates, where policymakers are on a 30-year timeline just uh, behaving in this way that pushes the long-run interest rates down. Where fiscal deficits are are being pushed into being too large on average because no one cuts spending in the boom and then everyone raises spending even farther in the bust. And then what happens here as well is that because of how mobile capital is these days, when you're in the middle of a boom, you know, so think the U.S. in 2004, 2005, uh, capital is going to flow into the country from all over the world. Right. Everyone is everyone's making money. Foreign investors want to join the party. So what happens here is this capital flows in from other parts of the world that pushes up asset prices farther, that pushes up realist, that pushes down interest rates even farther because now there's just more liquidity in the financial system, which which by lowering interest rates pushes up housing prices and makes it easier to lend and for this bubble to grow. So this uh, so what happens here is you have this systemic bias towards too low interest rates, too big budget deficits in the boom, which which gets stretched out even farther in the bus, creating this long run systemic bias, um, this long run, you know, systemic expansionary bias. And then in the boom phase, it gets magnified by these capital inflows that, that essentially just, you know, bring more punch to the party. And then in the, and then in the, uh, 
in the uh, in the downturn, the same capital can very easily flow out and then have the exact opposite effect, where now these sorts of this sort of tightening of credit that happens at the start of the bust that causes businesses to fail, that causes unemployment to rise, that causes us to have this downturn in the business cycle now is worsened because all the foreign capital that was previously coming in and building up the boom is now flowing out and such. And so it's uh, and, and so it generates these this cyclical behavior uh, of the financial of this financial system and economy that has this persistent expansionary bias. To and to all of our Austrian listeners out there, even Lord John Maynard Keynes spins in his grave hearing of this tragic tale of federal fiscal and monetary policy. How very dramatic! <laughs> <laughs> what is it? Yeah, this is a yeah. I, I mean, this is something that uh, this is something that that I think uh, there's 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 definitely there's definitely there's definitely other perspectives uh, on this in parts of the uh, in, in parts of the you know international money and finance uh, people who are working in that area and and, and there there are there are people like uh, there are people who who would make the arguments based on balance of payment factors that um, that there isn't enough. Liquidity and and I do think there I do think there is some there is some elements of, of truth to that as well in certain areas but especially as the world becomes more and more uh, more and more asset market focused as you know financial markets become more sophisticated and bigger and deeper this is th- this I think is beginning to dominate and if you look at if you look at things like the you know like the long running patterns of of interest rates in the developed world it's it, it's it, it can be tough to walk away with a with with a different perspective on it after looking at it for a while. So with this focus on international capital flows, balance of payments, given that this economic series that we're doing at Reconsider is in part to provide a little context for folks about important economic debates and narratives and a little bit of history, certainly we've been talking about the Great Depression. So I want to ask you a two-part question, one of which is how did international capital flows play into the Great Depression, whether that's, you know, taking a downturn and making bad go to worse. Uh, So that's the first part. And then two, if we're talking about, you know, first world countries versus developing world countries and uh, international interest rates, it seems like we also have to at least mention the issue of sovereign debt, which is beginning to creep its way into the news. A lot of people are saying we're facing a new global sovereign debt crisis. And once interest rates start to go up, a lot of countries, you know, all throughout Africa, but, you know, certainly major regional powers like Turkey, several countries in Europe are all going to face a growing portion of their budget allocated to debt service. So how how does the capital flow issue play into uh, those two topics? When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... 
All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Right, so the... Um so, so the first part of this in terms of, in terms of the, the capital, there's a couple of things going on with capital flows in terms of things like, uh, like the Great Depression or the Great Recession and, and how the international component comes into this. Now, so one thing that's really interesting that a lot of people, that a lot of people aren't aware of is the role that the U.S. debt plays in our international monetary system. Now, so, now, so most countries that aren't huge, right, so basically, basically pretty much um, that, that aren't both huge and financially and both and economically very very developed uh, tend to have very volatile exchange rates and because of the structural issues related to this uh, in terms of how many of their goods are imports and how important their exchange rate value is at their price level they incur these very very huge costs by having volatile exchange rates so for most for so for the vast majority of the world it is, it's advisable for them to uh, keep their exchange rate from being too volatile. So they'll do what's called pegging their exchange rate or, or having some sort of intermediate exchange rate regime where they're not perhaps exactly pegging it to a foreign currency where they set the value to be um, a specific ratio to the U S dollar or something. But, but um, uh, buying and selling their currency on foreign exchange markets to keep it from being too volatile. And now, and now why this becomes important and why this, and why I'm talking about this now when we on a question that started about the uh, depression and uh, the Great Recession is that is that the way that these countries set their exchange rates, the way they set these fixed exchange rates or these intermediate regimes is they'll buy and sell some foreign currency denominated debt in exchange for their own currency. So what happens here is if their currency is uh, too weak and they want to uh, and they want to make it stronger. They will sell off these foreign exchange reserves, these safe foreign currency denominated assets to buy back their currency. And now that's going to reduce their money supply and it's going to be contractionary. But if they want to keep their exchange rate from getting too weak, they have to do that. On the flip side, if their currency is stronger than they want, they can essentially print money and then use it to buy this foreign currency denominated debt on exchange markets. And then what and then that will reduce the value of their currency, but it'll increase their money supply and probably be inflationary and such. So it's the type of thing that there's a very specific thing that countries are doing to set their exchange rates, and it's just another type of monetary policy. But why this becomes important or when this becomes important is that these assets they're buying and selling in order to set their exchange rates or keep their exchange rates from being too volatile are safe U.S. debt, mostly U.S. government debt. So what happens here is that as the world economy grows and all these economies are getting larger and larger, they want more and more foreign exchange reserves. You think about it in terms of uh, this is this is the country level version of of uh, of perhaps your savings account. Right. It's, it's, it's your rainy day fund. So as your income goes up, you're going to tend to want a bigger rainy day fund because your expenses are going up. It's the basic logic of it. So as the world economy grows, these countries are accumulating more and more safe U.S. debt. And when they're accumulating all this safe U.S. debt, what they're doing is bringing all this capital into the U.S., using it to buy a U.S. safe bond. And then now that money is in U.S. 
asset markets. So what this does is it creates these capital inflows that push our interest rates down, which pushes our real estate values up, which pushes our stock market up. And it was it was instrumental in creating this bubble in the that uh, this real estate bubble that that created the Great Recession. Because what happened was in uh, in the late nineties. A huge chunk of emerging markets in, uh, in Asia, well, Southeast Asia and East Asia had a huge crisis. And so once this was over, they wanted to build up their reserves so that it didn't happen again. So that if so that if they did have this, uh, you know, sort of financial crisis start, they could use these foreign exchange reserves in order to keep their exchange rate from uh, depreciating quickly or weakening quickly. So they saved all this money, brought it into U.S. asset markets, and then and then what that did was uh, help fuel this bubble. So for the Great Recession, there's this huge international component of capital flows here because, because everyone wants safe U.S. debt, and that help, helps create these big booms in the U.S. In the Great Depression, there's actually something, something – uh, there was actually something a little – a little different going on or actually something that's that you could almost think of as as being the opposite of this. So so in the in the interwar period or the early interwar period, uh, countries were countries were going off of the gold standard um, for. Well, co- generally speaking, countries were going off of the gold standard, which made it so that there was more liquidity in the system uh, in order to in order to finance these uh, finance these sorts of capital flows across borders and such, and that and that through a similar mechanism of, of what I just talked about can uh, was part of what built this these uh, this stock markets in the lead up to the Great Depression into this overvalued animal that it was that uh, that uh, later had a big crash and then uh, led us into the depression here. But but one thing that was uh, one thing that was very important here. With these with these sorts of international components of these capital flows, is that uh, is that when we're thinking about things like trade deficits and current account balances and capital flows, one country's surplus is always the rest of the world's deficit, right? If I'm if I'm buying an import or if I'm importing a good, I have to be buying it from someone else. So importing a good that's a negative to me, but that exact same amount is a positive to whoever I'm buying it from here. So what happened here at the start of this Great Depression is basically everyone started, all the countries in the world, started trying to grow their economy through boosting exports. And so what they did here was was basically try to weaken their exchange rates and then export more and then import less. So substitute domestic goods for imports and uh, sell more exports to the rest of the world. However, what this basically did every time a country depreciated their exchange rate here was it reduced the total amount of demand in the world. Because what's happening here is every time you weaken your currency, there's now less money going to buy imports globally. And your domestic export sector is taking up a little bit more of kind of this you know global supply here, or uh, more of this global supply is going to this uh, these exports. So what happened here is that is that as a result of this international component, where everyone tries to grow by boosting exports, everyone starts uh, weakening their currency, reducing global demand, and then this Great Depression uh, just gets worse and worse here in this period. So there's uh, so there's a couple interesting things uh, that are going on with the the role of balance of payments factors in terms of in terms of these big financial crises here and. Uh, 
And and a lot of times, and a lot of times we when we look at these big crises, we focus on the domestic component. But what's happening with exchange rates and capital flows is often just as important, right? So so, so like the Big Short, for example, is is an entertaining movie. But there's but there's all kinds of things going on on the global side that that are just you know hugely important and and are very rarely addressed in the domestic narratives around these different sorts of crises. Yeah, I've spent a fair amount of my day job digging into old research reports from the Bank of International Settlements, and oh yeah, that's that's what I I love all the, I love all the all the stuff absolutely that thrilling reading, friends. Just <laughs> yeah, keeps you up at night, titillating. Wow. Yeah. It's like the central bank for central banks is like this is the, the three second version of it. But anyways, yeah. that's neither here nor there to pick up when you're done with 50 shades of gray. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It'll, it'll guarantee to put you to sleep at night. Um, unless you're us, in which case it'll keep you awake yeah. all night. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm legitimately excited to go read through their, <laughs> read through their central bank reports, but yeah. But. All right. So I, I want to ask you, uh, a question that I would consider wonky. And I want to explain to our readers why we're going to do that. Um, if they didn't already think that some of these questions were wonky. Um, so the, <laughs> yeah, just yeah. if you thought it was wonky, you <laughs> haven't even seen our true form. Yeah, we're <laughs> yeah. About, to, about to turn the knob up a little bit on the wonkiness. Yeah, it'll le- level up our wonk. Um, yeah. So we've we've been talking a lot on this show about Austrian economics, and that's because the last show we interviewed uh, two folks who self-identify as Austrian economists. And a big part of this show, if you've been listening to us for a while, you know, and if you haven't, you're learning, we like to present different perspectives, right? And the Austrian, and we like to present narratives about conflicts, about these different perspectives, so people can know why certain groups of people disagree with other groups of people. And there is a fair amount of disagreement between Austrians and other schools of economic thought, not about everything, but about lots of stuff. So some of the questions I'm about to ask uh, our guest, Jake, is in order to draw out some of these, these disagreements and to help, you know, spur conversation sort of in that direction. So with that preamble said, I want to ask you about money supply and wage stickiness. And real quick, wage, wage stickiness, is usually defined as downward wage stickiness, and all that means is it's harder to lower wages than to raise them for whatever reason. So there's a professor at George Mason University called Brian Kaplan who says that there is a contradiction in Rothbard's theories on money supply manipulation and wages. And if you'll remember, Rothbard's one of the sort of the key Austrian economists, one of the key theorists. So Rothbard usually says that downward wage stickiness is due to things like union coercion or government interference. So union coercion, you know, people getting together and saying, okay, we're not going to let you lower our uh, wages or we'll strike and government interference, meaning like minimum wages. But Rothbard does also admit that there are things that could lead to downward wage stickiness, even in a perfectly free market without any union activity and without any government um, interference. And the example that he gives is fear of business owners killing morale if they were to low, lower wages during a downward uh, downturn. Elsewhere, Rothbard says that um, if there is downward wage stickiness, increases in the money supply could in fact increase employment because it decreases real wages. So 
that's one thing. Rothbard is it admits that um, increasing money supply, so like low interest rates, um, expansionary policy can increase employment um, because it decreases real wages. However, elsewhere, Rothbard um, also says that the quantity of money supply in an economy is always, quote, optimal and utilized to the max maximum extent. And this is basically wonky language version of the Fed shouldn't do anything. So on the one hand, Rothbard is saying the Fed shouldn't do anything. On the other hand, he is admitting that uh, expansionary money supply can actually increase employment. So is, is, isn't if increasing money supply can increase employment, isn't that an example, though, where money supply is not at an optimal level? So is this a legitimate criticism? Is this contradiction valid? What do you think of this? Yeah, so uh, so I, I definitely agree with Kaplan on this. So so, so first off, so first off, um, uh, stickiness in real wages is, is something that is empirically it's it's empirically it's it's a hundred percent a thing. It's it's um, it's there's all kinds of empirical evidence out there that that shows that even when optimal wages are adjusting, the wages that you see are adjusting more slowly. But and then where it becomes really interesting, or where we start seeing things that are especially interesting about this are when you look at the asymmetry of, of how it's sticky. So wages, wages are sticky upwards where if there's pressure uh, for wages to go up, it'll usually take them, you know, a little while to adjust. You can think about it in terms of if, if unemployment falls by, you know, 3% over the course of a year, everyone isn't immediately walking or let's not even say a year. Let's say if, if unemployment falls quickly over the course of two months, everyone isn't immediately walking up to their employer and renegotiating, right? It takes, it takes time for the wages, for the wages to adjust here. But, um, or, or you can think about this in terms of when, when I go to give a lecture, I don't call my boss on the way there and negotiate my price for that, for that three hour lecture, because it's, because it's a, it's, you know, it's, it's a, it just takes a lot of, it's, it's very costly to have all those transactions occurring. So we do things like, so we do things like multi or, you know, year long contracts in terms of, in terms of setting your wage. So, so that's a big part of what's causing this wage stickiness. And so, and so even if the unions aren't around or, or government policies aren't around, they're still based on a minimizing transaction uh, cost uh, or based on the desire to reduce transaction costs, people still choose to get paid in a way that makes it so that so that uh, wages aren't being determined in a spot market. It's not like stocks or it's not like exchange rates where where if supply and demand changes uh, a little bit, the price immediately changes. So that creates part of the stickiness. And that's something that's that I'm, I'm positive Kaplan is, aw- is aware of, but isn't uh, he, he probably isn't talking about it here in this specific context. Now, now union coercion and, go- and government regulations can can exacerbate this, and that's actually a big part of why when you see countries with these very very rigid labor markets or countries where there's a lot of government policy in terms of in terms of labor market, they tend to have higher unemployment. Like if you look at Spain and Portugal versus the U.S. and U.K., um, Spain and Portugal tend to have much higher unemployment because there's just a lot more government interference in labor markets. However, the the criticism that Kaplan makes uh, in, in terms of discussing uh, in terms of in terms of looking at how um, employers and such don't want to cut wages because of reasons like morale is very very powerful as well and that's actually something that we see empirically quite a bit is that uh, is that employers because you know for these reasons 
rather than cutting everyone's wage by 5%, they're much more likely to cut and to cut jobs by 5% and then allow everyone to keep the same uh, to allow everyone who retains their job to keep the same wage. So what happens here is that because there's these behavioral factors, people get very, very upset if you cut their wages. What you see is instead of these small wage cuts when, um, when uh, the company needs to reduce their payroll, instead of seeing these small wage cuts, you see small portions of, of the employees getting fired, basically. So what happens here is that this wage stickiness, this downward wage stickiness, uh, is one of the is one of the driving factors of why we have unemployment at all, because because whenever there's a fall in demand for for the labor by this company, because of these behavioral factors where where there's this there's these just immense externalities by cutting your entire um, workforce's wages by five or ten percent, instead they just lay people off, and then and then that is part of what generates unemployment here. So wages are very sticky downwards, and they're to a certain degree, sticky upwards as well, and that and that definitely and that definitely is uh, and that is one of the big reasons why why inflation uh, in short term inflation, if it's if it's relatively small, is often considered expansionary. Because what happens here is that if you've negotiated this wage of let's say uh, twenty five dollars an hour, uh, if demand does fall, and now the optimal wage for your job would be twenty two dollars an hour. And your boss, instead of cutting your wage, instead cuts, um, what, uh, 12% of the workforce uh, at the company. Then what happens here is when you, is when you have this low to moderate inflation or infl- if, if the policymakers increase the money supply and that pushes inflation up to, let's say, 5% or 10%, well, what just happened here is that if with 10% inflation, the real dollar value of your wage just went down by 10% or went down to 2250. Where now it's optimal, right? Where, where, because, because your nominal wage has stayed the same, but the real wage has fallen because of inflation. And when wages fall down to their optimal level, now it's optimal for this, uh, you know, for the boss or whoever's running the business to start hiring people back. And so that's kind of the idea here is because of this asymmetry in terms of in terms of how wage stickiness generates unemployment, it makes it so that in order to maintain higher employment, whenever there's a fall in demand, that inflation, by generating a real, uh, a real pay cut across the economy, uh, helps uh, helps um, bring wages down to where they should be, real wages down to where they should be, and then unemployment can go back up to where it should be as well. And that's actually something that is. That you can look at in terms of the domestic side with inflation. You can easily look at it in terms of the international side and and show it by looking at exchange rates uh, and things like this. And it's uh, it, it, ha- it has a lot it has a lot of empirical support. And now in terms of the criticism of Rothbard's idea of the optimal money supply, um, I think that's I think that's sorely I think that's a very mistaken perspective because because the the real money supply this M two is is going to be set not just not just by the monetary base or, or you know, whatever it is, uh, whatever, pol- whatever policymaker said is the amount of cash in the system. It's also going to be determined by this sort of lending and leveraging that happens uh, in, the, in the financial system or just this lending and leveraging that happens that makes our real money supply some multiple of the money, of the money base. And that's going to be all driven by people individually following their own incentives. And because of the way that this international or 
not even the international aspect, but because of the way that uh, the financial system is structured, it can very easily deviate from the optimal money supply in this exact boom bust cycle that I've been kind of talking about throughout this uh, throughout this whole discussion here, where where because people underrate risk in the middle of a boom, they'll start lending more. Well, that pushes up the money supply, which which can help feel the boom, which can uh, you know reduce perceptions of risk even more, push up asset values even more, which can, uh, which can, uh, you know, generate more lending, increase the money supply again, and then kind of take you away from your, from your optimal value here, uh, in these, in these sorts of periods. So, so, so I don't think it's, so I think it's actually very mistaken to come at this from the perspective that the money supply is always optimal based, based purely on, uh, based purely on just the, uh, uh, behavior of markets. Whew. Okay. Remember, everyone, that will be on the quiz. So I hope you took your notes. No. <laughs> Sorry about that. That was a little wonky. <laughs> I blame but, Xander. He came up with the question. Yeah. He came up with the question? Yeah, that's <laughs> it. It's a good question. That's a really, really interesting question to kind of get into the differences uh, but between the more kind of structural or technical economics and then the Austrian perspectives. Yeah. And I think it's one of the most important things about the question for our listeners who like aren't going to run off and execute monetary policy in the near future. And and if some of you are great, hopefully we helped. But even if you're not, I think one of the great things about this question, while it is wonky and difficult, is that it's a like it's a question worth asking. And I think that the one of the master strokes of great economists is to get us asking questions about things that we took for granted, you know, things that we just assumed were true or constant and make us go, hmm, I wonder if it really works that way. And this is, a, I think, a great example of that. Yeah, that, yeah, I think that's a really interesting one because because the thing is, it, uh, coming at it, coming at this sort of question from a, um, you know, from a, from a very, very quick from a quick glance, you could you could definitely you could definitely come up you could very easily walk away with the with, with the idea that well you know if prices if prices adjust then then uh, you know everything's going to go back to where it should right but but there's all these different interesting uh, interesting elements of of the economy that are very structural in nature that can that uh, you know even if they're not caused by the government or they're not a result of any sort of policy, just, just that arise out of, out of the fact that you have, uh, you know, certain structures in which people interact can generate, can generate this behavior that's very, very different than what you would see if you were coming at this from, from a more kind of philosophical perspective, like the, like the Austrians tend to do. Speaking of philosophy, we're about to jump into the topic that is one of my favorite words, praxeology. And praxeology is one of the core bases of the Austrian School of Economics. And in short, praxeology is the study of human action. Uh, and one of the kind of like core tool sets used in praxeology is essentially um, like a mental case study in which you say, okay, let's say you're a business owner and you see this change occur in the economy. How are you going to react? And uh, one of the ways I've, I've loved seeing praxeology in use is... Um, or at least a, a variant of it is Hayek's treatise on the <laughs> the beauty of the price mechanism in uh, as a way of uh, of instantaneously delivering complex information across a complex system. Um, and uh, I forget which book it's in. I think it might be 
uh, the Austrian case for the free market, but don't hold me to it. No, it's not. It's definitely not that. Anyway, point B. Well, it was, oh. it was definitely, it was definitely. I, I know he did that in his Nobel lecture, the use of knowledge in society. Yeah, I, th- I think that's. I think that that is definitely one of, if not the most interesting and important economics papers ever written. Mm. Yeah, I, I'm a. I'll admit, I'm a big Hayek fan. And uh, maybe sometime later in the episode, I'll talk about how my views have changed a little bit as I've as we've worked on this. But anyway, so the the kind of counterpoint to praxeology is that one of the major critiques of Austrian economics is that it rejects empiricism, statistics, etc., and relies purely on these sort of thought experiments. The argument goes something like this. Uh, Mises and Rothbard, who are some of the early Austrians, use deductive reasoning uh, to arrive at conclusions about human nature. Uh, and deductive reasoning is about starting with a premise uh, and then sort of working your way outward from that premise as opposed to starting with data and working your way inward. Um, and so that is, they work from this like axiom about human behavior, which is assumed to be true, and work through all uh, the like kind of different permutations of how that could work out, uh, especially in particular to reacting to different stimuli. And this is different from a lot of other schools of thought, or maybe all of them, which depend more on inductive reasoning, that is making observations and statistics to draw conclusions. So given all that, uh, it was a big change in how we thought about economics and uh, the first question is, you know, do contemporary Austrians still tend to avoid the use of statistics or inductive reasoning? And also, um, to what extent was that a like really useful tool set to add to the economist belt? And uh, are there shortfalls in it? Yeah, so I think there's so I think the rejection of empiricism is is a huge shortfall in, in Austrian economics. Now, so now so their idea with the deductive reasoning actually um, at, at its core isn't isn't really fundamentally different from uh, from what the more the, the more technical um, the more technical approaches to studying economics. So so I mean, for example, in a in, in a typical in a typical piece of research, you're going to you're gonna you're gonna come out and you're gonna use deductive reasoning to build a formal model. Which is basically taking these these you know this exact same basic idea where you're starting with this logical structure of how uh, of how this sort of system works, uh, but then the difference where things split between the Austrians and and everyone else is that the is, is that the Austrians will continue looking at this continue with this sort of thought experiment approach, whereas the more kind of tech, technical um, the more technical schools of thought are, are going to take this this you know same sort of beginning uh, with deductive reasoning. But then they're going to form. But then they're going to form uh, a model in order to in order to more rigorously look at this. And now, and now this is extremely valuable. Uh, and con- Austrians often disagree, will often disagree with this perspective. But um, but I believe this is extremely valuable because one, it's extremely easy to sort of wade around inconsistencies uh, in an argument if you're just using words. If you're if you're if you're forced to formally lay out the exact the exact way that some mechanism works, it forces you to it forces you to address any sort of inconsistency that's very very easy for you as an individual to kind of jump past um, if you're if you're just working qualitatively. So what so what we do in, in the field of you know in the field of economics is we'll typically we'll typically start from this sort of deductive you know process and then we'll turn it into this formal mathematical model and then we'll come back. And we'll, um, and this is where the statistics come in. We'll start looking at the empirical, the we'll start looking at the data. And we'll start building these empirical models, and we'll see if the data matches up with what we expect from the formal model that we began that we began with in terms of the uh, the deductive reasoning. 
So, so, so most of economics is actually is actually much more de- deductive than inductive. But, but of course, in terms of coming up with something to study, you 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 often will be looking at the world, right? So, I mean, if you're if you're doing economics purely purely in sort of purely in terms of sorts of thought thought experiments, you might come at it from a little different direction than if you're looking at oh how changes in U.S. exchange rates can impact global trade, and then you observe some empirical regularities, and then from that standpoint is where you move into the deductive side, and then you do the formal model, and then you do the uh, empirical analysis to see if your formal model is correct and such. And also the problem is is that uh, is that uh, or or where where this creates problems for the Austrians is that is that one with sticking purely with the deductive reasoning and never getting into the formal modeling or the formal analysis, they, they're often, there's a lot of things that's, there's a lot of things that they miss in terms of other ways that things can work that also are logical, that, that have an internal logic that, um, that, uh, you know, makes sense. And you could, you could very easily construct arguments for, and they miss them a lot of times because, because of their lack of this sort of formal approach and this formal analysis. Further, once you've, once you've built this, once you've built this sort of theory about how you think the world works, whether you're starting, whether you're starting deductive and building a model or you're starting deductive and not building a model, because, because for basically any structure that, uh, or any factor that you look at or any economic relationship that you look at, there's multiple potential explanations that have, that, uh, that have an internal logic. So, so oftentimes what you need to do is go back to the real world and then use data to test these different competing explanations against, against the data and see which of them, and see which of them actually, uh, actually appears to be true. And such. So, so taking for example something like minimum wage. So it's it's very easy. It'd be very easy to construct a, a model that says that the minimum wage is going to uh, raise unemployment. But you could also very easily build a model that says raising the minimum wage will reduce unemployment. You you basically just have to have have to have the redistribution effect um, of the of you, you have to have a small unemployment effect. You and you have to have a uh, the increase in uh, income of lower income people who have a higher marginal propensity to consume that has to stimulate the economy enough that it creates um, more jobs elsewhere. And and whether that's true or whether it's true that raising the minimum wage will uh, increase unemployment through basic sort of uh, price uh, price floor mechanisms, right? Which which one of those is true is a purely empirical question because both of those are going to have their same internal logic. And which one? And it's 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 the exact same model, but what you have here is just um, it's just this question of which of these mechanisms is relatively more powerful, or which of these mechanisms is dominating the other, which is a purely empirical question. And so if you're and so if you're uh, if you're using the whole if you're coming at it from the perspective of you know no statistics where you're, you're purely deductive, you're not going to be able to actually test those you know, test those two ideas against each other, see which set of parameters is correct and see ha- which one, which one of these answers is actually correct. Raising the minimum wage raises unemployment or lowers unemployment. Right. And so if I understand correctly, what you're saying is that given a particular unemployment rate, given a particular minimum wage and given a crap load of other factors at any given moment, raising the minimum wage by a certain amount will have a net positive or net negative effect on unemployment because you have these two competing, 
essentially competing forces. One of is like basic supply and demand, higher price, lower demand. And one of which is the redistribution factor where the people who do keep jobs are spending more. So they're creating new jobs elsewhere. Or, or well, in, in terms of that side, it would be, it would be more that they have, the people who do keep jobs are spending more and the, and the place where that money is coming from, which would tend to be higher income people and business owners, they have a lower marginal propensity to consume or they consume a smaller portion of, of every dollar. So the, so the redistribution from the higher income to the lower income people will increase consumption, which will stimulate aggregate demand. And now at, at any given time, either of those things could be true. Um, it's, it's almost certain that, that one of them is, is, is more true than the other. But because, of, but because they both have an internal logic, if you're purely coming at this deductively, you don't know which one's going to be true. And you don't know at, at any given time which one is true, even if, if you know, sometimes during periods of, uh, of low unemployment, the, the sti- it, it could be stimulative. At times of high unemployment, it could be contractionary and raise unemployment. But the uh, but but the idea here is that because both of these both of these are both of these are processes which have an internal consistency. In order to actually see which one's correct, you have to go back and test them against the world. I really right? you have to, you I have really to. like this particular example because I'm sure many of our listeners are familiar with if they ever go on Facebook or any other awful social media site, they're going to be very accustomed to people posting you know some some graphic, some illustrative graphic with you know some text yeah. on it that tells them absolutely you must be crazy to think that raising the minimum wage will increase or decrease unemployment you must be a fool yeah. to think that because i figured it all out yeah 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 so it's i mean because it's right it's a very it's a very visible policy debate you know and it's it's something that pops across social media uh you know all the time right exactly like you say but but in theory in theory either of those of those things can be true using using even the exact same model, but just for different sets of parameters, different, uh, different, um, different, um, different relationships between an increase in prices and a change in the demand for labor or a different elasticity of demand for labor. Right. So, so because of, because just for, because this process, either one can be true just for different parameters of the model, you have to go test, you have to go test this model against the data, see what the parameters are and then see which is true. Right. Or see which is true when. Yeah. So and I also want to maybe not throw the Austrians a bone per se. But, you know, earlier I said, well, wouldn't the gold standard be great? And you said, no. I said, well, isn't it sometimes the fact that or isn't it sometimes the case that the government is a little over exuberant about lowering interest rates and such? And you go, well, yeah, 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 that happens, too. So, (laughs) yeah. So perhaps, you know, perhaps you may not believe that the Austrians uh, in rejecting, you know, kind of statistical approaches had it right. But. Um, I've heard some criticisms that uh, it's tempting for some economists to over rely on statistics, in particular, like very broad statistical measures. And a good an anecdote I heard was that, you know, um, if you just like jack up government spending on, you know, absurd example is, is, of course, getting people to dig holes and fill them back in again. And you just take a lot of debt and spend a lot of money on that. Well, look, the economy's grown. I mean, look how much GDP there is. Right. And so we like fooled yeah. ourselves into thinking that um, thinking that something, you know, something great is happening if we rely too much on statistics. Um, and and yeah. that I'm that example, I'm sure you'd agree with. But the question is, do you think that there is a propensity in some economic circles? Um, and maybe there are like certain places more than others, say the public versus the government versus academia, 
Um, do you think there might be a propensity to over-rely on statistics and not sit back and go, hmm, let me think about this from like the perspective of an individual actor? Yeah, 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 I would actually. Um, I, I think it's, I think it's actually, I think it's actually one of the things that's, that is, that is, it's one of the negative side effects about, um, about how useful technology is getting in terms of quantitative analysis is that it becomes very easy in terms of, in terms of the economics education, not at the undergraduate level, but in terms of like, you know, PhD, new PhDs coming out is that, uh, is, is that, is that in a lot of ways, a lot of people that are coming out, certainly not all, but a lot of people that are coming out now, um, are, are more, are closer to what are closer to a data scientist than than what an economist than an economist who finished their PhD twenty five years ago, and and I do think that's a problem um, in terms of in terms of the how quickly the technology is developing for quantitative analysis is making it is making it easier to just uh, to focus on the quantitative side instead of instead of having a strong theoretical background, but but I I would say that that's that's more an issue of that's more related to the fact that generally speaking um, not everyone is going to be as good at their job as they should be. So, so, I mean, so when I think what's, I think a lot of what's happening is that uh, is that it's become the path of least resistance for especially people in in my generation uh, of, uh, um, of economists to, to lean a little too heavily on the quantitative side. However, However, I think that that looking at it purely from the theoretical side and then not actually formalizing your your theoretical explanation is 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 more is more of a incorrect approach. Whereas what's happening, whereas what's happening in, in, in the kind of economists that I'm talking about who are fo- who are focusing too much on the quantitative side, it's not a problem of the approach as much as it's a problem of the application. Because us as imperfect people, you're you're going to have some economists that take the path of least resistance, and then going and going and doing uh, you know a heavy duty quantitative analysis is easier than building a than you know truly building a formal model, and and that that follows from sitting down and really you know thinking hard about what you're trying to analyze. So it's, so I think it's the difference in between a problem of the approach and a problem of the execution. And on the Austrian side, I would call it uh, a weakness of the approach, whereas, whereas on ours, I would say it's a weakness of the execution because it's become too easy to go purely empirical. I used to work at an uh, energy efficiency company that was also basically a, a data company. We would collect a lot of electricity data, and we sort of had a joke slogan internally that went something like, uh, get the data, 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 dollar, dollar bills, yeah. y'all. And, and that, that essentially captures the zeitgeist of, of, of now. I'm also reminded of the misattributed quote, the quote misattributed to Einstein, which is a real shame because <laughs> as soon as Einstein yeah. says it, it must be true. But um, the misattributed quote goes, uh, if you have a theory and the data doesn't support it, change the data. Yeah. <laughs> just like, ooh. And just as a, as a theorist, that, or not as a theorist, as, a, as a, an applied yeah, guy, yeah, it just stings. Yeah, that's, that's awful. That's the exact opposite. <laughs> All right. So, Jake, we got one more question for you. Yeah. And it's just kind of closing up this, this discussion on Austrians now and then. Um, 
how much does the modern split between Austrians and other economists today reflect the split that existed at the times of uh, Mises or Hayek? So to, to what extent have the original Austrian positions been brought into the mainstream and which remain, uh, at least according to some economists, unorthodox? Um, that's a, that's a great question. So, so there's definitely things that, that have, that have been brought in the mainstream from Austrian economics, uh, you know, from the time of Hayek, right? So, so for example, his, uh, his work on the price mechanism is, is staggeringly good. And, um, and, and it's something that it's something that's, you know, that we see and we talked about a lot. Um, and that's probably the first one that comes to mind. Now, things like these sort of, uh, kind of credit cycles, financial cycles, they were writing about that in, oh, I don't know, um, at least the 30s. So, it's, it's, so they've been, you know, so these, this idea of financial cycles, they approached it qualitatively, um, you know, 80 years ago. And it's, it's starting to show up in a lot of the empirical work in the past 10 years, 10, 15 years, especially from people at the BIS. So that sort of, that sort of thing is, is, is definitely coming in uh, to, to be much more mainstream than it was. You have things like the evolutionary approach. So, so the uh, the ideas from Hayek about things like spontaneous self organization um, and this sort of evolutionary process in uh, in economics is actually something that's looked at quite a bit, uh, and a big area that, that people are bringing that are, that are really bringing that into the analysis is in areas called complexity economics, which are which are based on the application of the science of complex systems to to economic analysis. And so, so, so Hayek's ideas about the evolutionary components of the economy, self-organization, those are all becoming much more mainstream. Um, those are probably the biggest ones. Yeah. So, so some of the cyclical stuff in terms of, in terms of the asset markets is, is becoming more important. The evolutionary aspects, the idea of spontaneous self-organization, um, all that stuff is, is becoming, is becoming much more, is becoming much more, not necessarily mainstream, but it's it's stuff that is it's stuff that's being done in the in the technical study of economics. So, dear listeners, uh, we need to let Jake go. Otherwise, he's not going to be able to speak at his he's you know, he's going to run his voice out and won't be able to speak at his next lecture. Uh, so unfortunately, we have to let him go. Uh, those of you, of course, who are enjoying this can pick up some of the reading that Jake and Xander recommended earlier. We'll put it in the show notes. But the big reconsider moment here, of course, is that, hey, you've heard a lot about economics and the boom and bust cycle over the past number of episodes. And for those of you who aren't econ- economics buffs, we thank you for being patient. We will soon be moving on to the you know surly, uh, uh, saucy details of s- such things as foreign policy, the North Korea deal, and tr- you know, Donald Trump generally. However, before we let you go, uh, we will have one more episode about this. And I think the big reconsider moment for today is that we have heard all these different perspectives by smart people who have PhDs, who teach in universities. And the, you know, you hear this from us a lot, but one of the reasons we gave you so many perspectives here is that, well, one, we don't want to do the thinking for you, but in particular, uh, we're hoping that you walk away from this starting to question some of the things that you've taken for granted for a really long time that, you know, someone has, you know, that sort of the first source that you heard or the most authoritative source you've heard told you was true that this is how the economy works. And, you know, such and such is to blame for the recession and such and such is to credit for its recovery. Um, you know, in short, it's complicated. So what we encourage you to do going on is, of course, just keep an open mind um, and think about 
you know, whenever you hear something, think think about the uh, think of it with a healthy dose of skepticism, and consider, of course, uh, where it's coming from, what agendas they might be and they might have, and of course, what other smart people might be disagreeing with them, uh, because there's a lot of roiling debate out there in the economics world. And there's a lot of stuff, there is a lot of stuff that, um, you know, most economists do agree on as well. And there's probably a good reason for it. So with that, uh, first, Jake, I want to thank you for spending so much time with us out of your busy schedule. This has been an absolute ball. And I, for one, have learned a lot. Yeah, thank you for having me on. It's, it's, uh, it's been great having a chance to talk about it. And with that, dear listeners, Remember, don't let the pundits do the thinking for you. Pause and reconsider. We'll see you next time. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.